<laughs> and I, I, I could see my wife right now. I'm not looking at her, but I could see her right now going, good Lord, man, just suck it up. <laughs> so I'm, in, I'm intentionally going to avoid this, this section while I'm preaching today, all right? So I'm literally going <laughs> to, it's over here. Um, but I, I, I'm, I am, I'm feeling under the weather. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start operative voice. I'm going to start by sitting. I don't know if I'm going to sit, you know, you know me. I don't know how long I'm going to sit in that chair. But this is uh, for, for our podcast and video folks going, why is he sitting in the chair? Is he? So, um, as, uh, <clears throat> as Jamie mentioned, uh, we are going through, we are going through this massive book of Daniel. And I, got, I just got to tell you guys, you know, I'm just sort of rambling in the intro before I dig in. Part of the challenge for someone like me preaching through a book like this, you guys, is that there's so much I feel like I want to share. And literally, what many of you don't know is that when I come on a Sunday morning, about two-thirds of what I wanted to talk about is left on the editing floor. And it's only like a third that I share with you guys. Otherwise, you'd be here for three hours. So I have to be sensitive to what I feel like the Holy Spirit is doing in terms of what it is that we're going to talk about we're in the book of Daniel, and Daniel is exilic literature, as he mentioned last week. And it's written about, I'm not getting off yet. The book is written about a time when the people of a God were taken into exile um, to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Real quick, for those of you that are not familiar with the Old Testament, God enters into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, and he says to them, in obedience and faithfulness will be blessing to you and to the nations, and disobedience will be judgment and exile. And in 722, finally, after decades of disobedience and idolatry, Assyria, the superpower at the time, comes and attacks a northern tribe and takes them into exile. The southern tribe of Judah is spared for that moment, but in 602 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the superpower of Babylon, attacks Judah and carries a group of people into exile. Among them are Daniel and his three friends. And the context in which Daniel takes place, and Jamie, thank you for the wonderful intro, is that all of a sudden Israel, the people of God, were taken from a monotheistic, believe in one God, God Yahweh, and living among people with the biblical worldview to taken into a secular, pluralistic city in which no one believed what you believed. So they went from being surrounded and being among people who shared your belief, believing the same God as you, to being taken into an environment at work, in school, in different places, where nobody believed what you believed, priorities and values were actually, in contrast, opposite of what you believed. And as I mentioned last week, this is relevant for us because it wasn't that long ago that people in this country and parts of Europe enjoyed, if you will, a society, culture, government, arts, schools, academia, where people were somewhat favorable to a biblical worldview. And as I mentioned last week, there's still parts of this country where that's the case. We call that the what? The Bible Belt, right? There are places in the South and different places where that's still the case. But in most parts of the country, that's not the case anymore. In most parts of the country, the value of tolerance rules a day. Most of the parts of the country, if you're a Christian that says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, you're not only, you're, you're not only criticized, but you're mocked for being narrow-minded. 
saying that I believe certain things about how a person ought to use money or my sexuality is seen as regressive and backwards. Some of you already know this. Being a Christian at work and professing your Christianity could lead to a number of outcomes. This is the world that we live in. Now, so what happens is church in 1951, a guy named Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called Christ and Culture. I think it's still relevant. He says the church responded in five ways, broad ways to this cultural shift. First way that the church responded is, is, is sort of this way. We'll call it not in the world and not of the world. Not in the world, not of the world. Separation. And by the way, when I go through this, I'm going to ask, how many of you guys grew up in cultures or church cultures this way, okay? And we'll do this little thing. In this, in this setting, people have a dualistic view of culture. And they basically see the church is good and, and culture is bad. And their mentality is, let's just boycott the culture and set up a parallel Christian culture. So, we're going to go to Christian gyms. We're going to go to Christian coffee shops. We're going to send our kids to only Christian schools. We're only going to get our news from the 700 Club. Hey! hey. <laughs> We're only going to watch Christian movies starting Kirk Cameron or Mike Siever to those of you that are Right? Let's set up a parallel Christian culture, okay? And they see the culture as being beyond saving, beyond redemption. And more than being repentant, they're just angry. How many of us grew up in Christian cultures like this? Okay. Uh, we all want to, let's, let's be honest, okay? Second way the church responded is this way. Not in the world and oblivious to the world. Again, another part of separation. In this setting, this, by the way, is part of culture I grew up in. There isn't too much pessimism, but too much optimism. What do I mean? They talk a lot about the coming revival, the coming revival, the coming revival. And there's an enormous obsession with the rapture. Anybody watch the movie Thief in the Night when you were in high school and you were basically scared right out of hell? Did anybody talk... But instead of this being deeply engaged in culture, this is a Christian community I came from, instead of being deeply engaged in culture, in other words, there is no engagement justice-wise, there's no engagement socially, there's no engagement to other facets of society. People care a lot about revival and discipleship and evangelism, but as long as our church is doing well, who cares about what's going on in the culture? And Christians are, 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 are called to go into full-time ministry, but nobody is challenged to become artists, playwrights, lawyers, attorneys, doctors. How many of us grew up in this? Okay. Third, it's not in the world and above the world. Folks in this camp talk a lot about culture wars, enlisting soldiers for God's crusade to return this nation to its founding father's intentions. Now, I don't, I, I'm seriously, I don't want to sound like I'm mocking, okay? Make, make a, in this mentality, we win the culture war, put people in positions of power, get the right people elected, pass the right legislation, and we can make America great again. These are the same people, as I mentioned last week, that talk about how we need prayers in schools. We don't need prayers in schools, we need prayers in churches. We talk a lot about how moral decay is because we can't post 10 commandments on the walls of the courtroom. There's moral decay because Christians are not obeying the 10 commandments. And here's a question. Take this country back to when? 
where our black and brown brothers want to go back to the 1950s? Is that when America was great again? And oh, by the way, when you look at history and Christianity, how centers of power, what happened to Christianity? It died. It died. Christianity thrived when followers of Jesus were in margins in the minority, forced to live in faithful obedience to their God, Yahweh. Study history and find out what happens when Christianity was synonymous with cultural power. It died. Do we really want that? Those are separatists. And by the way, I remind you guys all the time, we follow a savior whose height of his career was when he was crucified, not when he got elected. That's who we follow. Separate three ways. But then there's what Niebuhr called assimilation. And this is characterized in the world and not of the world. And I, I'm sorry, in the world and of the world. And this, by the way, I'm just going to put this out there, is where many of us might find ourselves today. These folks may keep the external trappings of Christianity, but there is no distinguishable difference between you and me and the culture around us. In our core being, we're just like the dominant culture. We're just as materialistic. We're just as individualistic. We're just as status or image conscious as the culture around us. When it comes to how we use our money, we're no different. When it comes to how we use our sexuality, we're no different. When it comes to the core essence of what it means to follow Jesus, there's a different. By the way, there's been a lot of hand-wringing recently about how people are attending church less, which is true. About how people are identifying themselves less as Christian, which is true. We call them the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. And there's a lot of concern in the church about how people are no longer. I think, for one, that it's great news. Do you know why? Because the days of you and I being culturally Christian are coming to an end in America. The days when you and I can go, you know what? I don't need to take a stand for Jesus. I'll just kind of float along. Those days are coming to an end. Is this good news to anybody else? Listen to me. We are headed towards a period where you going, I'm a cultural Christian. You know, I kind of do the Jesus thing on the side. And the days are coming when at work, your family own culture, people are going to say, take a stand. So for me, it's great news what's happening. You know why? Because the essence of following Jesus entails a cost. He said, carry the cross and follow me. If there's no cross-bearing or counting the cost to your Christianity and you've been really comfortable, those days are coming to an end and I go, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus. Then Niebuhr talks about, though, and this is where we're going for Daniel. What does it mean to live distinct biblical lives? And it comes straight out of what Jesus said in John 17 about you and me. 14, verse, verse, verse 14 says, I've given them your word and your world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I'm not of the world. My prayer is not that you take them, listen to this, out of the world. Don't take them out of the world. Be in the world that you protect them. And then he says, oh, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. In verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And here's where we're going for the next year. 
<laughs> it's not, we're not going to be in here. Where we're going for the year is what does it mean to live this? To be in the world, but not of the world. What does it mean to be in the world, to be sent into the world, to be deeply engaged in every facet of society in the world, but to be distinct, to be remarkably different so that people look at us and go, how are you so different? How are you so remarkably different? And right off the bat, we're not going to talk a lot about can you dance, can you drink, can you smoke, what TV shows can you watch? Some of you grew up in church like that. We're not going to go there because for me personally, they trivialize critical issues. And for anybody here that thinks legalistic Christianity is harder to live, we think, oh, legalistic Christianity. I walked down because legalistic Christianity is not that hard. You need a little bit of discipline, you can do it. You know what's harder? Cleaning the inside of our cup. Before we clean the outside of the cup. What's harder? Is that in your core, in your core and in my core, fundamentally what anchors us is love for and commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. Question is, is there anything remarkably different about you? Is there anything remarkably different about me? We could attend church. We could be in small groups. Listen, we could have the right lingo, have all the external trappings of Christianity, and yet be no different. Can I ask you one thing? This is part of where we're going, to be different. Everybody else comes to the city of Chicago for them. I'm here for my career, for my success, for my money, for my education. What is your perspective towards Chicago? Are you here just for you? Or are you saying, how could I contribute to the peace and prosperity and the shalom of the city? You are surrounded by Christians and none who go, I'm just here for me. And you could have all the external trappings, but as we saw last week in Jeremiah 29, how well do you and I live in the world for the flourishing of the city so that it's viable for everybody? Are we different? Are you speaking truth to power? Are you and I standing up for justice? <sighs> Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Turn your Bibles with me. And uh, we'll see how far uh, we can go today, depending on time and, and uh, how long I can go. But we'll get you out of here at a reasonable time. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third, excuse me, I gotta, I gotta have some tea real quick. Why? Oh, that's so nasty. Anyway, chapter one, verse one. <laughs> In the third year, I was told you can't drink coffee when you're sick. Is that true? I know. <laughs> uh, that tells you how much I know. In the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse two, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, that he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. And from a human standpoint, this is pretty straightforward. Israel has been politically, militarily soundly defeated by superpower, foreign power. 
But you and I know that nothing happens in history except through him, by him, and for him. Nothing. The key phrase right there is, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. Do you remember this from last week? Jeremiah writes to the exiles, and here's what he says in verse 4, chapter 29. This is what the Lord God Almighty the Israel says to all those, I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. To people who were convinced that Nebuchadnezzar, the bad dude Nebuchadnezzar, was in control. He is running history. And it's just a matter of time before, you know, God resumed history. Jeremiah and Daniel start off the bat and go, God has never been out of control. God wasn't, at the, God wasn't out to lunch when this happened. God wasn't asleep at the wheel. It may look like a brutal egomaniac is in charge of history, and history is charging towards disaster. It may look like evil is winning. It may look like injustice will have its way. But Jeremiah and Daniel say, but sovereign one is still in control of history. Is this good news to anybody? The sovereign one is working out his purposes, even during the tragedies of his people in exile. The exile to every human eye looked like God's plan, remember, to choose Israel and to bless the nations and the Messiah coming through it was absolutely going to be hindered and derailed. But Daniel and Jeremiah go, nothing is out from under God's sovereign control. Nothing. In 2017, I find this more relevant than any other time, that the good news is not there's absence of bad news. The good news is that the grave is still empty. The good news is that the kingdom of God is still advancing. And the good news is that our God still sits on the throne. The good news is that God's ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. The good news that the sovereign one has never not been in control, regardless of who's president, who is on the throne, regardless of what is happening around the world. Is this good news to anybody? And whenever we find ourselves going, God, where are you in all this? God says, I'm right here. I haven't gone anywhere. That thing that caught you by surprise right there, that didn't catch me by surprise. That thing that you didn't see coming, I saw that coming. I'm never rattled. I'm never taken off guard, never out of control. And if you and I truly believe this, we could face anything in life, anything. If you're new to our church, there's a saying that we like to say in our church, and this is, not everything happens for a reason. Sometimes things happen because we live in a broken, fallen world. Not everything happens for a reason, but in everything that happens, God is able to glorify himself, bring good to us, and bring hope, healing, and salvation to the world if we choose to let him. Romans 8, 29, God works for the good of all those who love him. Yes, he does, but sometimes that means choosing to believe that God works for the good of those who love him and leaning into this truth. If instead of giving into fear, I'm going to trust him. Instead of giving into that big beast that is fear, I'm leaning into this truth that God in his wisdom knows what is best for me. God in his love desires what is best for me. And God in his sovereignty has the power to bring that about. Is that hard to do? It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. But when we choose to lean into truth, truth, Nebuchadnezzar is not in control. God is. When we lean into this truth, God, there's chaos and absolute confusion. No, I've never not been in control. 
when we lean into this truth, we understand what Daniel is trying to say. You know, the thing is, though, with the Israelites, real quick, God actually spelled out for them what his plan and purpose for their exile was. One, it was for them. It was for them. It was to change them. It was to renew them. It was to grow them. The purpose was for the spiritual purification and renewal of Israel. Do you realize when the exile happens, I have to stand. Do you realize when the exile happens, the nation of Israel is in absolute spiritual disarray? The nation of Israel is in absolute, idolatry is running rampant in every part of their culture. Injustice, injustice rules the day. They are so far from what God intended for them. So far from what God intended for them. And God says, I'm bringing you into this exile to purify you, to refine you, to change you, and to bring you back to me. Some of us, I alluded to this last week, might be going through seasons of what seems like exile. And let's just be honest, it's because of our sin and our rebellion. But I have good news that I need to share with you today. And that is this. One, God has not abandoned you. God is not going to ever forsake you. God loves you with an everlasting love. And I want you to know that what you're going through right now in the season of exile is never, listen to me, is never punitive, but always redemptive and restorative. What you're going through right now in the season of exile is never punishment. Do you know why? Because God took all the punishment you and I deserved on the cross. It's never punishment. It's always redemptive and restorative. It's to change you, to mature you, and to bring you back to him. The exile was for them. But second, it wasn't just for them. It was for the Babylonians. God says over and over again, I sent you. I sent you there. I sent you into the city to work for the shalom of that place. In other words, it is just a part of my plan, just as much a part of my plan, that you be a blessing to the city of Babylon as I am to mature you, to grow you, and to refine you. Where you are right now, regardless of why you got there, it's not just about you, but the people around you. Where you are is never incidental or accidental. Where you and I are at this moment in our lives is so that God has a kingdom assignment for us to bless somebody around us. He says, I sent you there with the kingdom purpose. So what would happen if you and I actually thought that what's happening in our lives is not an accident, but an opportunity? Not something to fear, but something to embrace. Verse 3, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, though, to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Uh, we know that Daniel and his friends here were a member of the aristocracy of Israel. Why? How do you make a vassal nation subject to you without 
totally destroying it. Because if you totally destroy it, you got to build it back up again. That takes a lot of money and time and effort. What do you do? You take the aristocracy, the culture elites, the people in power, and you Babylonize them. You wipe out Jewish culture, and you make them just like Babylonians. Then you can subjugate and rule them. And there are three things that they did to the boys. Relocation, re-education, renaming. Relocation, re-education, renaming. Relocation. Pretty straightforward. Judah, Babylon. But let's pause for a moment. These young men went from a place that was familiar to them, that was comfortable to them, that was supportive of them, and found themselves in a place that was unfamiliar and not supportive. And they could have said, you know what? Maybe I'm just going to put this whole f- Christian faith thing on hold for a bit because I don't have the support system. I don't have the church. I don't have my brothers. And maybe I'll just give it up for a while. I've seen this happen in all of my years of ministry. It happens to youth group kids when they go from a good youth group to college. It happens to college students when they're really in, in, involved in university and then they go out into the real world. It happens to young adults when they go from a tight-knit community of church maybe to a new city where there's no longer what's familiar, what's supportive of them, and they kind of come to this place where they go, I don't know if I want to do this. Let me just say one word before I talk about the second thing. I think sometimes the reason why some of this happens, you guys, is people think and fool themselves into thinking that they're actually growing spiritually when the, all that's happening is they're just being affected by an environment. I'll say it again, Cece. Sometimes you and I think we're actually growing spiritually, getting to know God better, when all that's happening is we're being affected by an environment. It's also called secondhand spirituality. I'm going to ask you a tough question. Secondhand spirituality is when you go, I'm growing because I'm listening to sermons. I'm growing because I'm attending in large group. I'm growing because I'm in small group. And you never take your personal spiritual growth seriously. Our church is full of young adults who went from a youth group to college. Why did their faith fall apart? I think a lot of times we do a disservice when we go, this environment we think is shaping them into the people of God, when in fact we're doing nothing to help them dig deep roots in their personal walk with Jesus. Listen to me. If you're here at New Community and you're not taking ownership of your own personal walk because nobody can do that for you, and you're just being influenced by an environment, it's a matter of time before you move to another city and you go, do I want to be a Christian? These boys, they're rooted. Doesn't matter where they're at. Doesn't matter where they're at. Doesn't matter where they're at. Secondhand spirituality. Is that you? Is that me? Secondly, re-education. They're enrolled in University of Babylon. The leading pagan university in the city of Babylon. And do you know that the amazing thing is? Do you know, we'll see later on. Do you know what they're getting educated? They're getting educated with magic, astrology. Things that will make you and my skin crawl. They're getting educated in the finest, in the finest that Babylon culture has to offer. Okay? Dream interpretation. Chanting. 
But here's the thing. Here's the thing that, that, that's, that's fascinating. Chanting, magic, dream, interpretation. These, the liberal arts training, if you're University of Belmont, these are the things that the advisors, the wise men, the people that actually ran the country, if you will, with Nebuchadnezzar, that's the training they received. And here's the amazing thing we're going to see in our journey. Daniel is absolutely conversant. He is absolutely knowledgeable. He is so good at this stuff that he graduates cum laude in his class. But he never for once compromises his biblical convictions. He absolutely remains distinct. Here's a guy, it's Paul in Acts 17, city of Athens. He's quoting poetry of the leading poets at the time. People are like, what is happening? He knows and is so deeply engaged and aware and astute with the culture. And yet, he's able to say, you guys worship a God that you know nothing about. Here's Daniel, who is so culturally astute that he could go out there and he could school people in the, in the latest philosophy, intellectual arguments. And yet, he absolutely is distinct as a man of God. Third, they're renamed. Why is that important? And we'll see more about this as we go on. It means that they're spiritually bicultural. They are distinct Hebrew boys, and yet they're deeply engaged and knowledgeable about the culture at large. They are deeply in the world and not of it. Totally conversant with the, with, the, with, with, the, with the dreams, the hopes, and the wishes, and the fears of people at large. And yet, there's not a single instance of compromise. It's absolutely amazing. We'll come back to this more later. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So they accept the relocation, they accept the re-education, and they accept being renamed. But the thing that they're going to take a stand on, I'm not going to eat the food. They're not going to go along with the diet. And by the way, can I just say something? This resolve for Daniel... This resolve for Daniel, it didn't come out of nowhere. Daniel is a man of integrity and character, as we're going to continue to see. But listen, character isn't shaped by crisis. Crisis just reveals who you are. When Daniel, when Daniel comes to this moment of crisis, see, you and I think, the crisis, it'll shape me. And the harsh, No, no, no. Crisis essentially just reveals this is who you really are. You know what you're going to see? Daniel's character and integrity is shaped every day in the small decisions he makes to do what's right when nobody's looking. I'm going to say that again. When crisis hits, it's not going to make you. It's just going to reveal you. Your character, my character, is being shaped tomorrow, the day after, in the small, insignificant decisions when nobody's looking. Verse 9. God had caused the officials, we'll come back to the food diet a little bit, 
to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid, my Lord King, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than any other young man your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard from the chief official, pointed over Daniel, Hannah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. How gutsy is that? How gutsy is that? He's literally saying, you put us to the test and we're going to put God to the test. And we'll see what God does with us when we don't do what you want us to do. Put us to the test. God to the test. We'll see, we'll see what God does when we don't. One of the major themes we'll cover over and over and over again is this in Daniel. Faith is not believing despite evidence. Faith is obeying instead of consequences. Let me say that again. Can you put that up there? Faith is obeying in spite of consequences. Faith. Biblical faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Biblical faith is obeying in spite of consequences. Abraham did that. I want you to leave what you're familiar with and go. But what happens? Trust me. (laughs) Poor Abraham. It happened again. Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son. (laughs) Sacrifice him on the altar. But what? Trust me. Mary did that. An angel comes and says, you're going to give birth to the Savior. Embracing it means ridicule and judgment for the rest of my life. And her answer, do you remember? Do you remember? Mary's answer, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Theme that will come up again and again and again in Daniel. Faith is obeying in spite of consequences. How do you do that? How do you do that? Daniel shows us how. I'm really excited about Daniel chapter 3. That's when they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Does anybody know that story? So here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar builds a huge statue and puts his name on it. No, he, he builds a huge statue. And he says, I want everybody in the kingdom to bow down to it. Daniel and the friends go, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. And at the moment that they're about to be thrown into the fire furnace, and we're going to come back to Daniel chapter 3, just an appetizer for you. Here's what he says. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Because if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, 
We want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. How do you obey despite consequences? How do you and I do that? Here's what we have to understand about faith. In that simple statement, I'm going to put it up there. God is able. God will. But if he doesn't. In that simple statement lies how you and I get the courage to obey in spite of consequences. Listen, if you are a thinking person, I'm going to leave that up there. You go, listen, if they're sure that God is able and God is willing, why do they go, but he might not? Because most of us go, faith is God is able and God will, period. But he might not. And some of us go, but if they think he might not, how do you speak so confidently about how God will and, and, and how God is able? And what we're forced to do is to modify a popular, dangerous view of what faith is. These young men have been given assurance and given evidence that they're going to be delivered. But here's the thing. They're not so arrogant to presume that they're reading God right. They're not so arrogant to presume that they absolutely know what God ought to do. Why? Because they know that their God, Yahweh, is an untamed God. They know that their God is so big that his wisdom and his understanding is so large that they're not going to presume to know what this God will do. In other words, their confidence and their trust is in God himself and not in some agenda that they were sure God was going to promote. Their confidence and their trust is so anchored in God, his character, his wisdom, his knowledge, and not in their agenda. If their confidence and their trust had been in their agenda and not in God himself, they could never utter the words, but he might not. If what you're praying for, if what you're believing God for is more anchored in your agenda than you are in God, you will never be able to utter the words, but God, you might not. Never. 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 Their confidence is so anchored in God that they're saying, listen, God will deliver us. But that's not the reason why we defy you. We defy you not because we think we're going to live. We defy you because our God is God. We defy you because our God is God and my anchor is in him. So I will not worship your gods or any other gods you're performing. The real miracle of this story didn't happen in the furnace, you guys. The real miracle happened before they ever got in the furnace. They were spiritually fireproofed before they became physically fireproofed. God got them ready to face Anything. Anything. <sighs> Do you want that? Do you want that in life? I want that in life. I want to be able to go through life saying, God, 
Regardless of the consequences, I'm going to obey. Regardless of the consequences, I'm going to be faithful. Regardless of the consequences, whether I live, whether I die, you are God. I want to be so anchored in that. I want to be so anchored in that. They're literally saying, God will deliver us from death. God will deliver us through death. But at the end of the day, God will be glorified. And I will honor him, not use him. I will honor him. And not use him. The only way you and I could be men and women of faith who will obey in spite of the consequences is to come to a place in our lives where we can say with absolute sincerity, God can, God is able, but if not, it's not about me. It's about him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed. Verse 14. We're almost done here. I got to talk about the food and why he didn't want to eat the food. Don't you want to know? You don't want to wait two weeks for that, right? Okay, so let's talk about that. <laughs> It'll only take like five minutes, which really means 10 minutes. But anyway, let's just go. So he agreed to this, and he tested them for, for, for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better and nourished than any of the young men who, are the, who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine, and they were to drink, and they gave them vegetables instead. And cue the Daniel diet. <laughs> If you don't know what the Daniel diet is, good for you. The things that Christians do to take stuff out of the Bible. These young men didn't look like this because they ate vegetables and water. If you eat vegetables and water for three years, you're not going to look like them. The reason why they looked like that wasn't the diet. The reason why they looked like that was because of God. Hello, anybody? And they should have known better, shouldn't they? Is this not the same God that parted the Red Sea? Is this not the same God that parted the River Jordan? Is that the same God that allowed the walls of Jerusalem to fall down? They had seen God do even greater things. Why should they be surprised? But why are you and I so surprised? Have we not seen God's faithfulness? Have we not seen God move faithfully and powerfully? The striking thing <laughs> about this whole thing, and some of you walk up going, that was just a jacked up interpretation of that whole food thing. I don't buy it. That's okay. That's fine. I really don't care. I really, you know, buy that's it. But, but here's my attempt at it, okay? You ready? Here's my attempt at why I didn't food. Number one, number one, number one. Some interpreters go, well, that was against the kosher laws, mosaic laws. Here's the problem with that. They don't just say no to the food. They also say no to the what? To the wine. Wine is not 
prohibited in the Mosaic laws. Number two, some people say, well, they, it's because they were sacrificed to the idols. It was sacrificed to idol, idol worship. Could be, but problem is, Daniel doesn't explicitly say that. I think he would have. If they sacrificed the idols, and that was, I think he would have said, we will not because you sacrificed. But there's no mention of that. I think the lesson, actually, you guys, is much more powerful because it's much more subtle. What do I mean? There's nothing intrinsically unlawful or sinful about the food. Daniel doesn't reject the food because it simply broke a Christian rule. It took a lot more thought and reflection than that. The reason why when we talk about being distinct, you and I struggle is because you and I are conditioned to go, tell me the rules. Tell me the laws. <laughs> Can I eat it? Can I not eat it? Can I drink it? Can I not drink it? Can I go there? Can I be with them? And what we do in the church is, if there are not no clear rules, we make up these rules and we judge everybody else. We judge everybody else. And that is at the heart of religion. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think the key to understanding this whole thing is in verse 8, when, Paul, uh, when, when Daniel says, I, this food will defile. And I looked at the Old Testament Hebrew words for the other context, and it has a sense of spiritual pollution. Please listen for the next five minutes. In some way, the reason why Daniel rejects the food is because his friends know that the king's food and eating the king's food was a temptation to move beyond just learning about the values of the Babylonian culture to adopting the values. The royal food was a temptation to move beyond just engaging the culture to fully assimilating into the culture. The king's food was a temptation to go beyond just being culturally astute and being aware to losing your distinctiveness as a man or a woman of God. Here's what the royal food represented. Like most pagan societies at the time, the Babylonians idolized power, success, beauty, luxury, comfort, and wealth. It's what you live for. It's what you work for. It's what you sacrifice to the idols for. Idol worship was centered around offering sacrifices and appeasing the gods so that the gods would give you favor and bless you with these things. Nothing epitomized the idolatrous love of power, of money, of wealth, of success, of achievement more than the royal food. In contrast to this is Daniel, whose foundational anchor is have no other gods, what? Before me. Daniel is just like you and just like me. Daniel is surrounded by the temptation to worship something other than God. It's not in wood and stone and figures, but it's what it represents. He is surrounded by the temptation to give into the idolatrous love of the Babylonian elites of money, success, fame, achievement, comfort, and luxury. He has easy access to it anytime he wants in a way known only to Daniel. 
Daniel knows that somehow eating of the royal food is not breaking a law, but eating of the royal food is a temptation to get sucked into the lifestyle where he forgoes the allegiance and commitment to one God, Yahweh, and begin worshiping other gods. Daniel knows what you and I know. Sisi, come on up. Daniel knows what you and I know inherently. This is not about can you break some rules. This is about the fact that you and I and our hands, our hearts, every single moment of our lives is bent towards wanting to worship something or someone. Every day of our lives. And no, they don't come in the form of stone or wooden figures. They come in the form of approval, status, image, money, wealth, success, achievement, notoriety. You and I swim and breathe a culture in which idolatrous love of that is not only accepted, but it's encouraged. And Daniel says, I'm about breaking some rule. I'm surrounded by Babylonian elites who are saying, seek it, go for it. Who cares if you eat some food? He says, no, this is about the worship of Yahweh versus worship of all your other gods. And I'm not going to do that. To be biblically distinct not about what are the Bible verses and how biblically distinct is in every decision you and I make is saying how does this decision affect my commitment to Jesus Christ as my Lord? How much money should I spend on this house? How much money should I spend on the car? How much money? Why do you want to spend that money there? Why do you want that house? What status idol is driving to do that can I go there with them can I, can I hang out in those places what approval idol that you desperately need and seek is underneath that can I date a non-Christian well what are the Bible why do you want to date him why do you want to date her is that about breaking some rule? What is the fundamental heart motivation? And can you be rigorously honest to say, this is about worship of Yahweh, or there are other idolatries of love that's beckoning my heart. Every single day, you and I make the decisions. There is no specific Bible verse. Why? Because at the essence, it's about who do you worship? Who do I worship? Well, pray with me. <laughs>